My father, a native of Fanyang, was dismissed from his official post and banished to be a commoner in Xinzhou in Guangdong. I was unlucky in that my father died when I was very young, leaving my mother poor and miserable. We moved to Guangzhou and then were in very bad circumstances. I, and this is my name, were selling firewood in the market one day when one of my customers ordered some to be brought to his shop. Upon delivery being made and payment received, I left the shop, outside of which I found a man reciting a sutra. As soon as I heard the text of the sutra, my mind at once became enlightened. Thereupon, I asked the man the name of the book he was reciting and was told that it was the Diamond Sutra, the Vajracharika. I further inquired whence he came and why he recited this particular sutra. He replied that he came from Dungshan Monastery in the Huangmei district of Zhuzhou and that the abbot in charge of this temple was Hongzhen, the fifth patriarch, and there were about 1,000 disciples under him. And when that, uh, and when, that when he went there to pay homage to the patriarch or the ancestor, he attended lectures on this sutra. Uh, and he said that His Holiness used to encourage the laity as well as the monks to recite this sutra, as by doing so, they might realize their own essence of mind and thereby reach Buddhahood directly. So, when he heard this, uh, it fired his way-seeking mind. And he decided that he had to go and encounter the fifth ancestor and hear and study for himself. And by good fortune, somehow mysteriously, he was given a, a hoard of coins that enabled his mother to live comfortably and for him to go make this long journey to, to the mountains. So he goes there and he says, I went to pay homage to the ancestor and was asked where I came from and what I expected to get from him. I replied, I am a commoner from Xinjiang of Guangdong. I have trans traveled far to pay you respect, and I ask for nothing but Buddhahood. Small request. Uh, you are a native of Guangdong, a barbarian. How can you expect to be a Buddha? I replied, Although there were northern men and southern men, north and south make no difference to their Buddha nature. A barbarian is different from your holiness physically, but there is no difference in our Buddha nature. He was going to speak further to me, but the presence of other disciples made him stop short. And he ordered me to join the crowd and go to work. And then Hunkin was a rather, uh, rather uh, Winan was a 
he was rather audacious. Uh, he said, may I tell your holiness, said I, that prajna, transcendental wisdom, often rises in my mind. When one does not go astray from one's own essence of mind, one may be called the field of merits, the field of blessings. I don't know what work your holiness would ask me to do. Pretty sharp. Uh, and Umjan said, uh, you can see this is a sort of Shakespearean aside. This barbarian is too bright. Go to the stable and speak no more. I then withdrew myself to the backyard and was told by a lay brother to go split firewood and pound rice. And so that's what he did. So he didn't ordain uh, as a monk. He just went to the work to the work area and worked for the temple. And presumably, uh, legendarily, uh, he was illiterate. Uh, so then we have the famous poetry contest, which you've probably heard something about. Uh, one day, so the, the sixth ancestor, the fifth ancestor was trying to decide who would inherit uh, his dharma as the sixth ancestor and who would be uh, the leader of the sangha, who would, who would literally inherit his robe, the robe and bowl, which had been handed down to him. He was the fifth ancestor after Bodhidharma. And so presumably this was Bodhidharma's robe and bowl. So the ancestor assembled all his disciples and said to them, the question of incessant birth, rebirth is a momentous one. Day after day, instead of trying to free yourself from this bitter sea of life and death, you seem to go after tainted merits, uh, that is merits that cause rebirth. Uh, yet merits will be of no help if your essence of mind is obscured. Go and seek prajna, wisdom, in your own mind, and then write me a verse about it. He who understands the essence of mind will be given the robe, the bowl, and the dharma, and I shall make him the sixth ancestor. Go quickly. Delay not in writing the stanza, as deliberation is quite unnecessary and of no use. In other words, if you get it, you should be able to write it right away. Um, the man who has realized the essence of mind can speak it at once, and as soon as he is spoken to about it, he cannot lose sight of it, even when engaged in battle. So the disciples withdrew and said to another, to one another, it's no use for us to concentrate our mind to write the stanza and submit it, since the ancestor, since the, since the prize is bound to be won by Shen Shu, the head monk. Uh, and if he, if we write it perfunctorily, it would only be a waste of energy. You know, why, why bother? Uh, 
Upon hearing, hearing this, all of them made up their minds not to write and said, why should we take the trouble? Lazy rice bags. Hereafter, we will simply follow Shen Shu wherever he goes and look to him for guidance. Meanwhile, Shen Shu, speaking to himself, thought, considering I am their teacher, none of them will take part in the competition. I wonder whether I should write a stanza and submit it to His Holiness. If I do not, if I don't do not, how can the ancestor know how deep or superficial my knowledge is? If my object is to get the Dharma, my motive is a pure one. If I were after the uh, patriarchy, then it would be bad. In that case, my mind would be that of a worldly, and my action would amount to robbing the ancestor's holy seat. But if I do not submit the stanza, I shall never have a chance of getting the Dharma. Very difficult. So in front of that ancestor's hall, there were three corridors and the walls were bare and they were about to be painted by the court artist. Uh, when Shen Shu, so Shen Shu uh, composed his verse and he made several attempts to submit it to the ancestor. But as soon as he, he kept going to the hall, and as soon as he did, uh, he just got so anxious that he sweated all over. Uh, he couldn't screw up his courage to submit the verse. Uh, in the course of four days, he made altogether 13 attempts to do so. So he was really tied up in a knot. Uh, then he said to himself, it would be better for me to write it on the wall of the corridor and let the ancestor see it for himself. Uh, in other words, he wouldn't put his name on it. He just would write it anonymously. If he approves, I shall come out and pay homage and tell him that it's done by me. But if he disapproves it, then I shall have wasted several years in this mountain receiving homage from others that I by no means deserve. So at 12 o'clock at night, he went secretly with a lamp to write the stanza on the wall. And his stanza read, Our body is the Bodhi tree, and our mind a mirror bright. Carefully, we wipe them hour by hour and let no dust alight. Our body is the Bodhi tree and our mind a mirror bright. Carefully, we wipe them hour by hour and let no dust alight. As soon as he wrote it, he left and went to his room. Ah. Uh, when the ancestor, the ancestor quietly and secretly read it himself. And he already knew that Shen Shu had not entered the door of enlightenment and that he had not known his essence of mind. 
in the morning, he sent for the court artist and went with him to the South Carter to have the walls painted. By chance, he saw the stanza. I am so sorry to have troubled you to come so far, he said to the artist. The walls need not to be painted now. Uh -huh. It'd be better to leave the stanza here so that people may study it and recite it. If they put its teaching into practice, they'll be saved from the misery of being born in these evil, these evil realms of existence. The merit gained by one who practices will be great indeed. And he then ordered incense to be burned and all his disciples to bow to it and recite it. Uh, after they had recited it, all of them exclaimed, well done. At midnight, the ancestor sent for Shen Shu to come to the hall and asked him whether he had written this stanza or not. It was I, replied Shen Shu. I dare not be so vain as to expect to get the end to become the ancestor, but I wish your holiness would kindly tell me whether my stanza shows the least grain of wisdom. The ancestor said, your stanza shows that you have not yet realized the essence of mind. So far you have reached the door of enlightenment, but you have not entered it. To seek for supreme enlightenment with such an understanding as yours can hardly be successful. You'd better go back and think it over for a couple of days and then write another verse. Senchu bowed and left. Two days later, it happened that a young boy who was passing the room where I, Renee, was pounding rice, recited loudly the stanza written by Shen Shu. As soon as I heard it, I knew at once that the composer of it had not realized the essence of mind. For though, although I had not been taught about it at the time, I already had a general idea of that. What stanza is that? asked the boy. I asked the boy. You barbarian, he replied. Don't you, don't you know about it? The ancestor told his disciples that the question of incessant rebirth was a momentous one, and those who wished to inherit the robe in the Dharma should write him a verse. Elder Shenshu wrote this formless verse on the wall, and the patriarch, the ancestor, told us to recite it. Uh, he said that those who put its teaching into actual practice would attain great merit and be saved from the misery of being reborn in evil realms of existence. I told the boy, hey, I wish to recite a stanza myself so that I might have affinity with, right, recite the stanza too, so that I might have an affinity with the teaching in the future life. I also told him that although I'd been pounding rice there for eight months, I had never been to the hall, and that uh, would he show me the hall where the stanza was written. The boy took me there, and I asked him to read it to me, as I am illiterate. When he finished reading, I told him that I also had a stanza, and asked, 
asked him to write it for me. Extraordinary indeed. That you could also compose a stanza? Don't despise a beginner, said I. If you are a seeker of supreme enlightenment, you should know that the lowest class may have the sharpest wit, while the highest may be in want of intelligence. Okay, dictate your stanza, he said. Uh, I will take it down for you, but don't forget to deliver me should you succeed in getting the Dharma. My stanza read, there is no Bodhi tree, nor stand of mirror bright. Since all is void, where can dust alight? There is no Bodhi tree, nor stand of mirror bright. Since all is void, where can dust alight? When he had written this, all disciples and others who were present were greatly surprised. <clears throat> Filled with admiration, they said to one another, how wonderful, no doubt we should not judge people by appearance. How can it be that for so long we have made a Bodhisattva, we have made a Bodhisattva incarnate work for us? Seeing that the crowd was overwhelmed with amazement, the ancestor took off his shoe and rubbed out the verse, erased it. For jealous ones, lest jealous ones should do me injury. He expressed the opinion which they took for granted that the author of this stanza had also not yet realized the essence of mind. The next day, the ancestor secretly came to the room where the rice was pounded. Seeing I was working there with a stone pestle, he said to me, a seeker of the path risks his life for the Dharma. Should he not do so? And then he asked, is the rice ready? Ready long ago, I replied, only waiting for the sieve. He knocked the mortar three times with his stick and left. Knowing what his message meant, in the third watch of the night, I went to his room. Using the robe as a screen so that none could see us, he expounded the Diamond Sutra to me. When he came to this sentence, one should use one's mind in such a way that it will be free from any attachment. I at once became thoroughly enlightened and realized that all things in the universe are the essence of mind itself. Thus to the knowledge of no one, the Dharma was transmitted to me at midnight and consequently, I became the inheritor of the teaching of the sudden school, as well as the robe and the begging bowl. Hong Chen said, you are now the sixth patriarch. Take good care of yourself and deliver as many sentient beings as possible. Spread and preserve the teaching and don't let it come to an end. Take note of my verse. And so now that Hong Chen says a verse. 
sentient beings who sow the seeds of enlightenment in the field of causation will reap the fruit of Buddhahood. Inanimate objects void of Buddha nature sow not and reap not. He then said to Lenin, as the robe may cause for, give cause for dispute, you are the last one to inherit it. Should you hand it down to your successor, your life will be in imminent danger. Now leave this place as quickly as you can, lest someone should do you harm. The, sixth, the fifth ancestor accompanied me to Chujang and there ordered me into a boat. As he did the rowing himself, I asked him to sit down and let me handle the oar. It is only right for me to carry you across, he said, an allusion to the sea of birth and death, which one has to go across before the shore of Nirvana is reached. And so he went into the mountains and stayed there for quite a number of years as a layperson, living among hunters uh, in the forest, being serving as their cook, and letting the Dharma cook in him. So that's, you know, the first part of his biography. I have my own take on this uh, on this story. Um, we'll talk about this a little more. This the platform sutra itself is a uh, it's a kind of polemic. It's an argument for it's an argument that took place at a time when. The Zen lineages were being constructed in China. Um, lineages were really important given the Confucian context of uh, Buddhism that was emerging uh, in the early Tang Dynasty. So this is about uh, year 600. Uh, and they were not so important, they're not so measured or important in, uh, in India. But those, the values of lineage and the Confucian values were really strong uh, and continue to be. So, actually, in, oops, sorry. in the generation or two generations, the generation two after Lineng, there was a, is this working? Yes, there was a uh, sort of a contesting of lineages. And uh, so actually in Southern Buddhism, uh, Wineng was the sixth ancestor. In Northern Buddhism, Northern School of Buddhism, uh, Shen Shu, the other, the head monk, was the was the sixth ancestor. It happens for 
whatever reasons that Wenang's lineage became the root of our living Zen tradition, uh, which evolved into uh, a number of schools of Zen and ultimately to uh, to Soto and Rinzai schools, which persist to today. And also the Obaku school still exists, but it's very small. Uh, and the lineage that derived from Shenshu uh, seemed to have died out after a number of generations, uh, at least as far as we know. My take on those two verses, let me read the verses again, okay? Um, Chen Shu's verse says, our body is the Bodhi tree and our mind a mirror bright. Carefully we, work, we wipe them hour by hour and let no dust light. That's the side of our practice that is about cultivation. That's the side by which we are constantly working on ourselves. We are uh, looking at the infirmities and um, distortions of our mind and and clearing them and cleaning them away and uh, rolling them back so they're not so we're not caught by them. When Ng's verse was there is no Bodhi tree nor stand of mirror bright. Since all is void, where can the dust delight, uh, alight? So that's the emptiness side. That's the side of the, uh, of the Diamond Sutra, which is uh, one of the earliest of the, the Prajaparamita texts, um, of which the Heart Sutra that we chant is in line. And uh, You know, it speaks to, if Shen Shu's verse speaks to the relative practice of cultivation, Huineng's verse speaks to the absoluteness of, of emptiness. So my take is these verses fit like tongue and groove, that they complete each other. And that we can't, that both of them are pivotal aspects of our understanding and our practice. So some years ago, uh, I wrote a novel, which is uh, metaphorically sitting in a drawer upstairs, 
Uh, and as one, one of the pieces of this novel is uh, a kind of extended biography of, of Winning, uh, which was really fun to write. And in that novel, shortly after he leaves uh, the monastery uh, and heads into the mountain, he finds a hermitage to settle into. And he settles there. And one day, Shen Shu shows up. And together, they're, they're alone at this hermitage. And they live together for months, practicing, working to grow food and take care of their uh, living space and uh, enacting the complementarity of their practices, the wholeness that's, that's articulated by those two verses together. Uh, it's very sweet to imagine, actually. Uh, and that the, whatever conflict or contest uh, is hinted at here, for them was resolved because they were both, they both had their eye on the Dharma. And, uh, so there was a, a practice of mutual appreciation. So I'm going to stop there. I've been going on for a while. Uh, you may have some questions or thoughts relating to this story before we go on. Yeah, John. A little um, hesitant to say this because I'm afraid it will sound I've always had the same reaction to the two verses. And the, the first time I've read, I read the Platform Sutra, it's like, well, wait a minute, the other guy was right. Why, why is everyone acting like Shen Chu got it wrong and Binan came in and just blew him away? You know, if you take away Shen Chu's verse, it's just nihilism. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not even interesting. It's just, oh, it's all void. Who cares? Um, and I think there's a tendency in these stories sometimes to, and, and here I recognize also that there was the polemical aspect with Shen Hui wanting to right. come in and um, exalt the Southern school over the Northern. Shen Wei was um, a disciple of Wenang's in the next generation, and uh, purportedly he was the author or the assembler of what we have is this text, the Platform Sutra. And um, but the, it's there's 
this sort of exaltation of Huineng's verse at the expense of Shen Hui's, uh, Shen Xu's, um, too many Shens, um, doesn't seem to fit with our practice how we do it now, nor does it even seem to fit with the portion of the Platform Sutra that's the sermon. And it, it just, it, it has always rubbed me the wrong way. I don't, I don't have a question here. I'm just, I'm kind of venting because I've, I've always been a little bit put out by this, by the first portion of the platform. Mm -hmm. I really find it useful in my life to look at the places where I'm put out. Because those places, it's like there's something alive there, you know, that, that irritant. Uh, there's something going on for me when I, you know, when I feel that. Uh, and uh, I find that, that that's encouraging. For example, uh, you know, I, I initially came to practice in the summer of 1968, and I wasn't, I was too young, I wasn't able to sustain it. Uh, and shortly after, I had some friends who uh, were practicing with Chogyong Trungpa, the great sort of crazy wisdom Tibetan teacher. And I would, you know, these stories would filter out, filter back about kind of drunken parties and orgies and, you know, all kinds of weird stuff. And, uh, and I kept asking myself, is this Buddhism? Is this Buddhism? It was something felt off to me about it. And I came in, in later years to realize that just that irritant was provided soil for way-seeking mind to at least, for the seed to continue to live. Uh, and I, I think that uh, that's a way that we can look at uh, this text. Um, there are other elements that are, that are possibly troubling in this, but uh, uh, it really is an argument for the supremacy of one school over the other. But what is it that we take away beyond that? You know, just that Chen Shu's verse and this, that this story has survived is a way of validating uh, the verse itself and, the, and the, the practice that's within it. That's, that's the way I take it anyway. Other thoughts? Anything out there? Yeah, Kavir. Thank you. Um, if, if the first verse was not the verse, then why did he have everybody reciting it and they said, 
Slide it to the left. <laughs> Maybe. Oh. Um, because I think he, he had people recite it be precisely because it pointed people towards a rigorous practice. You know, it wasn't the full manifestation of enlightenment. He said, you're at the door of enlightenment. That's what he said to him. It's, you know, and if we're at the door, it's a lot closer to step over the threshold. And I think that, the, you know, he wasn't, uh, Hong Chen was, was paying his respect to that. He was being respectful to his student, but there was also something of substance in that verse that he knew was gonna be useful to people, particularly, you know, you have this whole very kind of lazy, discouraging attitude that the monks had. And this was kind of inclining them towards something more vigorous, right? Start here. Yeah. And then, kind of yeah. And then you know, uh, you may find your way. You might, it may not be steps and stages, sure. you know, but if you can reach this door, you're a lot closer to the threshold. Yeah, Gimpo. Well, question is also kind of like Kabir's, and it's also a point of uh, sort of something I'm uncomfortable with is this time hearing the story, it really seems like the fifth patriarch is like playing some game on a higher level than he's not. I mean, he's really taking the skillful means thing a bit far, in my opinion. It seems like he's doing, he's operating more in the shadows than we like to think of, you know, teachers doing. And I wonder why. I'm not exactly sure. So what do you mean by in the shadows? Well, it seems like in many instances in the story, he's saying something different than, than he later claims to be true. You know, he sees the poem, he assesses that it's not great, but then he tells everyone to do it anyways. You know, it just seems like, to, this is just my read, maybe this is not, you know, like, correct, but it just seems like he's not being upfront with people about what's going on. You know, he transmits the robe and then says, get out of here, you know, he doesn't seem to be you know, out in front of the situation. Just kind of. But one of the, I mean, one of the things you, that unfolds in the, in the text as it as it goes on is uh, this tension between the sudden and gradual school, and uh, nominally. Uh, the sixth ancestor is the ancestor of the sudden school. Uh, and in a lot of the literature that followed that, including uh, his a dialogue with his disciple, 
uh, uh, Yuan, uh you're talking about a practice that has no steps and stages. And one of the things that the Sixth Ancestor says is that um, for the sharp-witted, if you like, uh, there's the sudden way. For those who are less, who are more dull-witted, if you will, and I'm using his words, not my words, uh, that the approach of steps and stages may be necessary. And I think that the fifth ancestor, at least at the point at which Shen Shu wrote his poem, was surmising, well, we got a monastery full of people who don't quite get it. And so they have to do this gradual cultivation. And then this illiterate lay, lay worker shows up who, you know, who gets it, who has insight into emptiness and, uh, that's the person that he that he chooses and you know it's also really interesting in in kind of the social sense and we see this in in the bodhidharma story as well uh that there's jealousy the monks were jealous and, you know they were gonna they were liable to do him harm and when he goes he's followed when he goes into the mountains He's followed by one of the one of the monks uh, who wants to steal the robe and bowl, and uh, he confronts Winning, and uh, Winning says, "Go ahead, you can have them," and but he can't pick them up. They're too heavy. So you have these, uh, you know, these mythological or fiction, you know, fantastic stories. And also you have, there's a, you know, a cultural uh, context for this of people being human, people being jealous, people I, being harsh. I guess I just kind of have my reservations about like the whole poetry contest in the first place. Like it seems like He's creating the situation that ultimately causes quite a bit of conflict. And I don't, I don't really feel like he was doing it, you know, without thinking that maybe something like that is going to happen. That's probably true. Also, it's a story. You know, did this happen? Who knows? Wineng is a, Wineng and Shen Shu are figures who appear in, uh, you know, in the records from at least from the middle of the seventh century. So we feel that they're real, but whether they, whether they manifested the particular 
characteristics that they're that they're given in these stories we don't know. Uh, the thing about stories to me is, uh, it's like I was saying to Jonathan, it's like, how do they work on you? You know, and our dis and again our discomfort with these stories. There's something useful in that discomfort. And I, I'm not entirely comfortable with it. And there's parts, there are other parts of this text that I'm not entirely comfortable with, but there are things that are uh, really wonderful. So I'm just gonna see, what time is it? 8.10. Uh, I, uh, yeah, but I also appreciate the fact that he he didn't stick to his gun say the, the first verse was correct and let's go with it and what is the barbarian knows. So he did see that even a barbarian or somebody that can read or write has the potential and made him the sixth ancestor. So for him to to kind of come back. And, and realize that and grab the shoe and wipe the, the first verse. So that also shows that he he realized that he he's there's potential in everybody, regardless of where you come from or where you know where you don't know. Hosan, we're having a hard time hearing. Yeah. So this this is intense. So just forgetting this. Um In 732, Shen Wei, who was uh, Weining's uh, disciple, organized a conference. Uh, and in the conference, he attacked the Northern School, including Shen Shu and Pu Qi. Uh, and he accused Pu Qi, who was a disciple, the disciple of Shen Shu, of sending monks uh, in 715 uh, to cut the, the head off of the mummy of, of Wineng. Wineng's, Wineng, there's a mummy of Wineng and it still exists. Uh, but, you know, evidently, according to the story, Shen, Shu, Shen Shu's lineage send heirs to cut off the head of the, of the mummy. This is like really pretty funky stuff, you know? Uh, and you know, what I'd written in notes is this struggle keeps arising with violence through this story. And these threads of violence, jealousy, attempted murder and so on uh, catches us by surprise because we have this naive notion that enlightenment should create sort of a, a circle of peace all around itself. Uh, but the peace that we're talking about is really finding one's balance in the midst of uh, all kinds of really difficult circumstances, including violence and war. 
Uh, and we can see that that's true in our world. Uh, and we named settleness, uh, was able to encompass the afflictive emotions and the violence that was all around him, even when he was threatened by assassination. So that's, that's really powerful to me. Um, the structure, there's a number of chapters to, uh, which we're not gonna have time to go into hardly at all. Uh, there's a biography, there's a chapter on prajna, there's a chapter on samadhi and prajna, uh, uh, there's a chapter on jhana or meditation, uh, which is interesting because there's no meditation instruction. He doesn't really ever communicate what the practice is. And I think it, it really falls very much on the emptiness side. And the, the articulation of the practice is something that had to emerge in subsequent generations. Uh, and there's a, in the middle of the, in the very middle of the sutra, uh, there's an ordination ceremony. And this is his ordination. Um, when he arrives at, I think at Sao Chi, um, the abbot there recognizes that he is the, here's the sixth ancestor, but he's still a layperson. And he wants him to, to teach, but he says, uh, why don't I ordain you before you, uh, before you take the platform? And the platform of the platform sutra is the is the teaching platform, um, and so that's where Weening actually receives his ordination, um, which is interesting because our lineage so our lineage begins with a layperson, uh, and only later in life does he receive ordination. The ordination ceremony, when you read through it, it's, it's really familiar. It's the same basic form as our ordination. It begins with uh, repentance of karma and with then with refuge and the bodhisattva vows and the precepts. And for me, one of the pivotal things, teachings that I take away from, uh, from the Platform Sutra that really always stays with me uh, is uh, the first, well actually all of the Bodhisattva vows. There's a little twist 
on the Bodhisattva vows that uh, we find in the in Platform Sutra that to me is tremendously useful and instructive. So our the vow we have here is beings are numberless, numberless I vow to awaken with them. Uh, and it's kind of a softening uh, of beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Uh, saving is not necessarily, sometimes saving is a little uncomfortable to us because it uh, kind of reminds us of uh, salvation and other things from our Abrahamic tradition, which we may not be entirely comfortable with. So here we say, beings are numberless, I vow to awaken with them. Gui Nang's first Bodhisattva vow is, sentient beings of my mind are numberless, I vow to save them. That, to me, opens, opens a big door sentient beings of my mind. So what does that mean? You know, um, we were talking the other day at residence dinner. I've, I've been, uh, I've been seeing a psychotherapist lately, uh, which, uh, which is really useful. Uh, and his methodology is something called internal family systems. Is anyone familiar with that? So internal family systems is like you're dealing with the sentient beings of your mind, right? Uh, and those beings are at, at one point, they're, they're beings that you were at some point in the past, or they're beings that, that protect you. Uh, that serve you or that served you in the past, but maybe don't serve you so much anymore. Uh, but for me, the way I extend this is um, I look at the notion of rebirth in this context. So sentient beings of my mind, you know, there's like, there's a five-year-old me, there's a 15-year-old me, there's a me that really feels like I'm 75, uh, which is kind of bizarre and sometimes anxiety-producing. Um, there's joyous me, there's hurt me, there's angry me. There's all of these are sentient beings of mind that are called forth by causes and conditions that I encounter. And there are various theories or doctrines in Buddhism about rebirth. What, what I was taught, at least in this school, was that, um, and certainly from Sojin and others, is that we're looking at moment to moment rebirth that according to the conditions, the subjective conditions of, of our lives, uh, we may be reborn, you know, in the Buddhist cosmology, there are six realms. There's human realm, 
the deva or god realm, uh, fighting demons, hungry ghosts, hell dwellers, and animals. I think that's right, that's six. And so it's like, those are realms in which one can be reborn. And each one of them, each realm has its own set of characteristics, but really they're limitless realms, numberless, any number. And when certain internal seeds are watered, then that being is born. The vow to save all the sentient beings on my mind is to meet those beings with unconditional love and acceptance. That does, that does not mean you allow them to run the show. You know, sometimes you have to be fierce or strong with them. You know, if your child is about to jump into, jump off the curb into traffic, uh, you pull her back. You know, that's, that's an act of love. It's not an act of force. Uh, so all of these different, there's different ways of responding and relating to the sentient beings of your mind. And at the same time, uh, right now, everybody I'm looking at is a sentient being of my mind. And I'm a sentient being of, of yours. Uh, this, we are not limited. We're not confined to this envelope of skin and bone. Uh, we are connected to each other in ways that, that we don't understand and to everything. And that is also uh, a function of mind. Uh, so that's been a really powerful teaching to me, uh, drawn, from, drawn from the Platform Sutra. Uh, let me stop there and take any thoughts or questions about that. You guys have been very quiet out there in Zoom land. Is there anything on your mind? Hey. Uh, so when you say the sentient beings on my mind, is he is he referring to you know, Jonathan was saying all about emptiness, right? So is he is he saying that sort of like everything is like a projection of our mind, that things do not exist inherently from their own side? Well, I think you know, one of the things that as I was studying this, there's there's also a, a in the midst of this, there's also a doctrinal context, contest or contexts that I would, if we had more, if we were really studying it in depth, we'd have more uh, opportunity to get into. So in a sense, uh, we name's verse, we name's position is 
coming from the Prajnaparamita or the Majamaka perspective, the emptiness perspective. Uh, and the other Dharmic perspective that is, uh, that is, you can read in this is the perspective of the mind only school, of the Yogacara school, which is, which is basically saying, talking about how everything that we perceive is a function of mind. Uh, and so you, at different points, in the, and at different points in this text, both of these things come up. They come up a lot more in this version. What, what's interesting, so there's two major versions of this text. One was, this is the one that was more widely distributed and more, more familiar. Uh, and then in the early 20th century, they discovered an earlier version in the Dunhuang Caves in uh, Western China. Uh, and it's, it's shorter and it's somewhat simpler and doesn't have some of the doctrinal complexity that this does. And it's, it's really interesting to, to read them both. But here I think that the uh, the Yogacara elements kind of show up a bit more, if that makes sense. And, and this is a, yeah, this is an interesting sort of dialectic between the two of them. Uh, we, we did a little study of Yogacara uh, I keep coming back to it. It's it's really intriguing me, and it makes it's makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, as a perspective that is really honoring the nature of of mind and the function of all one's conscious processing and perceptions. Uh, I'm looking at the the chat. So am I not loud enough? Is that what someone can from there can tell me? You're yeah. loud enough. You just can't hear us. No, I can't hear you. Uh, now I can hear you, um, but I'm not. I haven't been seeing any raised hands, so that's all. Okay. Um, so, any other thoughts or questions? Moment. I have a question. Yeah. This is more of a historical question. So, when did Shensho's line die out, and was the Platform Sutra, since it's actually written later? I mean, it seems like the textual strategy that legitimized one line over another, kind of like the Lotus Sutra, it's employed all these strategies to justify, uh, you know, the Mahan tradition. 
Well, I think that um, I'm not sure. Let me just see if I have. Excuse me, Hozon, could you repeat that question? We couldn't yes. hear it out here. Yes. Question was, when did Shen Shu's line die out? Is that is that right? Was there another part to it? I, I just wondered if the, if, I think the platform switch was actually recorded later after a payoff time. Oh, yes. And so I, it, it seems like it may be a strategy to legitimize his line. No, that's what I, I, I was saying that, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Shen Shu lived from 606 to 706. And then, uh, right. Uh, and then his disciple, his next disciple was uh, Pu Qi, who I mentioned before, who supposedly sent the monks. And they were identified with the Lankavatara school. The Lankavatara school is a Yogacara school, which makes sense when you think about the verse that, um, that Chen Chu wrote. Is that so far? Are you with me? Well, I don't know anything about the Lankavatara school. So the Lankavatara school is the is the is Sutra is is a key text of the uh, Yogacara or the mind only school. Uh, Winang lived from six thirty eight to seven thirteen, um, and I think that. Uh, let's see. So there was this conference that happened in 732 that I mentioned that was organized by Shen Wei, which was uh, which was designed to um, to promote the Southern School. And uh, then there was a rebellion in China in 755-56. And after that, Shen Wei was very prominent uh, for uh, doing a lot of ordination and selling ordination certificates and raising money for the emperor and thereby kind of guaranteeing his supremacy over the Northern School. But the Northern School is very much alive. There's a wonderful book about the Northern School by uh, the scholar William Bottiford. Uh, it's very rich. So I wanted to, to tell one more story about a, a, a coming from the Platform Sutra that uh, in, there's a chapter called Samadhi and Prajna. And historically, those are seen as different stages in meditation. Samadhi is concentration and Prajna is wisdom or enlightenment. Um, I must have been about 20 years ago or so, uh, I, a couple of us organized a dialogue between uh, Robert Aitken Roshi, with whom I was quite close, and Sojin. 
Uh, and they liked each other and they had a good relationship. Uh, and so we had this thing called the Zarankai, which is like a, a, a Zen dialogue between uh, serious practitioners. And it ended up being very uncomfortable for a number of reasons, which I won't go into. Uh, but at one point, uh, you know, Eikin Roshi was, was sort of fiercely questioning Sojin about, tell me about Samadhi and Praja. What's Samadhi and what's Praja? Uh, and Sojin was not, um, he sort of circled around it, but he didn't come to anything. Uh, he couldn't, he, he was being confronted. It was very uncomfortable uncomfortable for me. Um, and the next morning, he called me on the phone, Sojin, just, you know, from downstairs to upstairs. And that was very unusual. You know, he said, come down here. Uh, <laughs> and I just like, what have I done? And you know, I came into his office, which is now my office, and he had the platforms which open to this Samadhi and Praja chapter in the platforms which we said, see, see, and in the platform sutra, uh, Uvinang says, Samadhi and Prajna are inseparable. Uh, samadhi is like the lamp and prajna is the light. Without the light, the lamp has no function. Without the lamp, there can be no light. And um, that was a very powerful moment for me. That was a moment of sort of confirmation of who my teacher was. Uh, really wonderful. So I just thought I would tell you this story. We're almost done, but I see Paolo has his hand up. Would you like to ask something? Uh, yes, hey, John. Um, if I can real quick. I, I think it might be interesting um, to know that in the, in, in the Tibetan lineage, um, Madhyamika also sort of wins the debate. And the question in the end isn't really because they, they don't disagree with the, the mind only school in right. any way, except in the, the one place where they do, which which is where they say, well, the mind only will say that in, in the end, the universe is of mind only. In my Yamika, they just logically take it one step further and where you end up with, with emptiness. Um, that in the end, the universe is, is empty even of, of mind. Yeah, I think that these are, um, they're just looking at things from uh, slightly different angles. They're looking at the, they're looking at the jewel from a different facet, at a different facet, but it's the same jewel. So we're just about done. I think what the, is time? Uh, so what? 
almost 840. Okay. Any last thoughts or questions? Anyone who hasn't spoken? Anyone out there who hasn't spoken? Who? None of you. Well, actually, Paolo spoke. Um, going once. Going twice. Sold. So um, next week, we're going to look at the wonderful record of uh, Dungshan, uh, Tozan Ryokai in our lineage, who is one of the uh, one of the nominal founders of, he's the, that's the Toe in the so Toe school. Uh, and uh, uh, he's a fierce and uh, pithy figure and we'll, we'll have fun exploring him. Uh, if you come up with do you have any questions that occur to you uh, between time, please just email me and I'll do my best to respond. And also to say that Saturday, it's the day after tomorrow, um, we're going to, if weather permits, which I hope it will, we're going to have an ashes interment ceremony uh, for uh, portion of Sojin Roshi's ashes, uh, and we're going to uh, inter them beneath his memorial stone uh, out back. And that'll be after lecture, we'll be about 11.30, 11.45. And you're all, with your masks on, you're welcome to, to come and participate. So with that, let's, let's chant our version of the four vows and uh, Say night. Beings are numberless. I vow to awaken with them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow with them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I Three times Means are numberless. I vow to awaken with them. Illusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Beings are numberless. I vow to awaken with them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. 
Possible. I now to be coming. 